So I, I, I want to look at this conversation this morning that Jesus has with Peter. But just for the sake of not assuming that everybody here knows the context of this this conversation. If you'll give me about two or three minutes, I want to make sure that the stage is set properly so that you understand the context of the conversation. Peter, uh, whose birth name was Simon, is being addressed here by Jesus. Peter has followed Jesus for three years and has been one of Jesus's main three disciples. There were a small group of disciples, even of the 12. There were three of them, Peter, James, and John, that often were um, taught and were able to witness certain things the rest of the disciples did not. For example, when Jesus was um, transfigured, Uh, on the mountain, it was Peter, James, and John that were there. When Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, it was Peter, James, and John that were there. And so, Peter had the closest access to Jesus of anyone, except arguably James and John, who may have had the same amount of access. Peter had been taught trained, and Peter was a man's man. He was a fisherman. He was kind of uh, cocky. Every now and then he would get out in front of himself, say some things he shouldn't say. Peter was the kind of guy, punch you in the mouth, and then tell you you're sorry afterwards, but you shouldn't have looked at him wrong, and he got you, he got you confused with the other guy he meant to punch. That was kind of how Peter was. And even in the back. I mean, I'm talking years in. You remember the night before Jesus is crucified, one of the soldiers goes at him and Peter pulls out his sword and literally cuts the guy's ear off. Like, there's still a lot that this guy has to grow. But leading up to that moment, just hours before what I'm talking about, where he sliced that guy's ear off, hours before that, last night of Jesus' life, Jesus is with his disciples, and he says to his disciples... One of you is going to betray me. And Peter takes the stage and he says, you know, I think we all know. Possibly it could be any of those 11. I mean, we all have our ideas who it might be, but it could be any of the 11. But there is no way it would ever be me. I would die, Lord, before ever denying you. And Jesus said, well, Peter, actually, you're going to deny me three times tonight. That's what's going to happen. And you know the story. Not only does it happen, Peter denies him three times. But he ends up leaving, weeping bitterly. And his hero, whom he wanted to stand beside until death, dies alone, hung on a cross, while Peter is hiding in fear and shame. This is the worst moment of Peter's life. 
all three years when Peter's walking beside Jesus and everything's good and he's been given authority and power and he's healed the sick and he's, he's cast out demons, Peter never in his wildest dreams thought perceived it going this way. So follow me for a minute. Jesus raises from the dead. He ends up appearing to the disciples and at one point in time, almost 500 others. The news has spread. Jesus has risen from the dead. In John chapter 21, we are many days, close to maybe 40 days possibly, after Jesus has risen from the dead. And you know what we have in John chapter 21? Peter is not telling anybody about it. He's out fishing in a boat. Peter was literally, had literally returned to the life he had before Jesus ever walked in. Peter's still living in his shame. He still cannot believe what he did. He has that feeling of life will never, ever, 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 ever be the same. It's too late. It's too, like, I, 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 there's how I denied the Lord. And in John chapter 21, Jesus comes to Peter in that situation. It's important you understand that what I just read is in that situation. He comes to Peter, and I want you to notice something that's awesome. He comes to Peter. Man, that's the awesome thing about our God. Jesus wasn't sitting on his throne like, well, Peter knows how to get to me if he wants to. Peter was so broken, so ashamed, and yet Jesus, even after being denied by him three times, goes to him. I'm telling you, that's the kind of God that we serve, brothers and sisters. He will come to us in our brokenness. He will come to us in our pain. He will come to us in our shame. And even when we're the ones who have messed it up, as was the case with Peter, even then he still comes to us and pursues us. And so Jesus shows up. And now I want you to think about the question that he asks. Peter, do you love me? When you record that conversation, we look at what was recorded about Peter saying, though everybody deny you, I will not. Here's what's insinuated, right? The text doesn't say it, but I'm just telling you, it's insinuated. Peter's basically saying, Lord, I, I think we all know, I, I love you too much to do that. Not real sure about the devotion of these guys, but not me. And so the way that Jesus phrases that first question, do you love me more than these? It's kind of, it's, in some ways, it's kind of like, where are you at now, Peter? And Peter doesn't say, yes, I love you more than all of these now. He gets it right, and he just says, Lord, I love you. In other words, this isn't about them. This isn't about where I stand on the scale of my other disciple brothers and sisters. It's about me and you. I'm done comparing myself to everybody else. I'm done pretending I'm up here and they're down here. I'm not even going to answer to that. Lord, I love you. That's enough. And Jesus tells him, as we read it, three times to feed the sheep. In the ESV, the middle word is, is translated tend. And what it literally means, because they are different words, what it literally means is to lead to pasture. So to take a flock and to lead it 
to a place it can eat. Jesus says in a nutshell three times, feed my sheep. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning. So that's the context, but let me tell you what I want to preach about. I want to preach about feeding the sheep because not only is that the context, here's what else you need to know. This is the last conversation that Jesus had with Peter recorded before Peter launches the church. Peter would have more influence and leadership in the launching of the New Testament church. It all starts in Acts chapter 2. Nobody would have more influence than Peter. He was the guy. Jesus had prepared him for this moment. And what we just read is Jesus' final speech. Final instructions. That is important. And here's what Jesus says. All right. Listen carefully. You're going to follow me. You're going to serve me. You love me. Here's your instructions. Three points. They're super easy. You're going to have to follow them in progression here. Point number one, feed my sheep. You got it? Because we don't want to need to make sure. I mean, that's like the first point. That's super important. You got it? Okay. Number two, pay attention. Wait for it. Number two, feed my sheep. You got it? Okay, one final instruction, Peter. Number three, feed my sheep. That's the speech, that's the instructions. It's mind blowing to me. The emphasis, obviously, on the importance of it is huge because he says it three times, right? It's, and it's silly to say that as if anything Jesus said isn't important, but to say the same thing over and over and over, we all understand is a way of emphasizing its importance. Jesus says, here it is, final speech, church is about to start, the Holy Spirit's going to fall. The church is going to blow up, dude, and I got three really important instructions for you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. This fundamentally should, should change, or if it doesn't need change, it should direct the way that we do ministry. And so what I want to do is just this morning teach, if you will, on this one concept of feeding the sheep. I want to share what I'll call three spiritual truths from Jesus' final conversation here with Peter. Number one, the command is to feed the sheep. Three times, it's very significant. God has called his shepherds to feed the sheep. Not entertain them. Not make them happy. Nor has he called us to make them bored. Nor has he called us to make them sad. My point is simply that he hasn't called us to do those things. He's called us to feed the sheep. That is the goal. I'm going to tell you something. As a pastor, it's actually a huge relief when you can come to see this and rest in it. We live in this era of time 
where it is like, man, you know, you, you got to find a way to stick out. You got to find a way to brand yourself. You got to find a way to do this. You got to find a way to get likes. You got to find. No, you don't. That's not what we're called to do. It's not that those things are wrong or sinful, but as we're going to develop this sermon, we're going to see those things don't change lives. And when those things begin to take away from feeding the sheep, then those things become sinful. To my leaders, teachers, those of you who are pastors, teachers, who spread the word in any capacity, you need to understand God's called us to feed the sheep. That's the command. Three times. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. It's not a possible option that you should consider in your portfolio of how you do Christianity and how you teach. It is the command, feed the sheep, period. And I'll tell you, it's actually freeing when we, when we are okay with that. It's like now, whew, I know what I'm supposed to do. Believe it or not, I, I'm, not a I'm not a real shepherd and I don't have sheep. But, but, I have had friends who did. And when I was a kid, one of my best friends, they had a bunch of sheep. And... I just don't ever remember getting really excited watching them eat. It's not the most uh, thrilling thing to watch. And here's the reality. When, the, 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 when a good shepherd is feeding the flock, it's not always going to be super exciting. You know, if we're, if we're not careful, we'll get into this mindset where we always want to get up and hit a home run. Because we've been, we've been trained, right? We've been packaged where everything we consume is meant to be fun and bright and entertaining. And somehow we allow that to creep into our Christianity and we want, you know, whoever's the biggest and the brightest and we want to home run this and a home run that. It's just not the way the Word of God's meant, meant to be taught. It's just not the way that it works. We, we just need to be teaching the Word, and sometimes it's going to be home run, sometimes it's not. I think it's so important that we, as spiritual leaders, those of you in this room that, you know, God has a gift on your life to be leading the flock, and you have a call on your life to be helping with shepherding and teaching and preaching and in any capacity, it's important that we understand our goal is simply to feed the flock. And, and I was thinking about this in the terms of baseball. You know, everybody wants to get up and hit a home run. But if we're going to win, sometimes you got to be willing to get up and bunt and advance the bases. And if we get everybody just always trying to swing for the fences to be the hero, you know what happens? We all lose. It's not the way it's supposed to be done. We have to trust God that, you know, we, we just need to be teaching and preaching the word. So the command is to feed the church. Number two, the food is the word of God. That needs to be clarified. Now, it doesn't really have to be proven. Uh, it's really ironic. I'm going to read John 6.35 in just a minute. Kevin got up, and he had no idea what I'm preaching this morning, no clue. But the passage that he just got up out of John chapter 6, if I'm not mistaken, he quit reading in John 6.34, and I'm going to read John 6.35. But 
the Bible clearly teaches us that the Word of God is the food upon which we feast. I mean, there's, there's uh, references in the Old Testament to some of the prophets being told to eat the scroll. Um, I want to give you two quick passages to just kind of validate that, and then I want to talk about the food uh, uh, being the Word of God. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So our sustenance, that's what food is, our sustenance as a child of God, as a church, is the word of God. And then in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. On one hand, Jesus said he is the bread of life, and then in John chapter 1, it tells us the word became flesh. And so... Clearly, the Word of God is the food we are to be feasting on. Now, as a pastor, there's something that I, I found interesting studying this particular, uh, John, you know, this, this conversation with Peter. As I've already told you, two times really the words translated feed, and then one time is this word tend that's like, it means lead to pasture. And you know, here's what I realize. It's not just my job to feed you the Word of God. It's my job to lead you to feed yourself. The food is the Word of God. You need to see the importance of that this morning. It is not possible for me to overemphasize the importance of the Word of God in your life. I want you to imagine a scenario where physical food, real food, you ate once a week on Sunday, and then you fasted Monday through Saturday, and then you ate again on Sunday. Every week of your life, you ate one day. More than likely, your body would probably adjust. You would most likely survive you probably wouldn't die, but you would be very weak and frail. So it is with most people and their true spiritual condition. Because they're not feasting on the Word of God. They're not in the Word of God. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, if, if the only word that you get is what you're getting when you show up here once a week and you hear me talk for 30 minutes, it's not enough. I hope that I'm not wasting your time when you show up here to worship. I hope that you're learning the word of God. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're not, you need to go somewhere else. Because as we've already seen, it is the job of the church, it is the job of shepherds to Feed the flock the word of God. If you're not getting that from your church, if you cannot say truly and sincerely, I have learned the word of God, I can look back over the last month, I can look back over the last six months, I can look back over the last year, and I can say I am learning the word of God. If you cannot say that about your church, you need to find another church. 
And that statement is true about this church and about my preaching. We need to be learning the Word. You need to be in the Word. It is sustenance. It is where you will get your spiritual strength. The food is the Word of God. And number three this morning, we see from this in Christ's great concern that His sheep be fed, that the diet of the church determines its health. The diet of the church determines its health. That's true of the church as a whole, but it's also true of you as an individual. The Word of God, how much of it you know, how much of it you consume, how much of it you live by, how much of it you're regularly putting into yourself, will ultimately determine your spiritual strength. And there is absolutely no other measurement. We are living in an era of time where there are professionals that are considered to be professionals that have metrics that determine the health of a church. Metrics such as growth on a chart. Metrics such as imprints or touches through social media. Website views. They will look at financial records of a church to help determine if, in fact, it is a healthy church. But listen to me this morning. None of those things actually determine if a church is healthy or not. They don't. Not according to God. It is possible to have a very small church that is very healthy because its people are being fed and taught the Word of God, and its people are in the Word of God, living by the Word of God, and ultimately, disciples making disciples. Don't want to run off on a huge rabbit trail here. I would argue that that church will over time grow. But nonetheless, my point is, numbers in and of themselves don't actually tell us much. It's possible to have a small church that's incredibly unhealthy. It's not teaching the Word of God in any capacity. It's possible to have a large church with 10,000 people in it that's totally unhealthy because what the people are being fed is not the Word of God. And it's possible to have a church with 10,000 people in it and it's a healthy church because the people are being taught the Word of God. Like, that's the metric, brothers and sisters. And you need to know, you're looking for a healthy church, that's the metric. You want to be healthy, that's the metric. Be in the Word, know the Word, feast on the Word, be making sure you're getting the Word of God in your life. Because the diet of the church determines its health. Now, why the Word of God? I'm going to share with you three reasons why I believe the Word is so important. Obviously, there's probably a hundred, but I, you know, you guys are hoping to do lunch here in 30 minutes. So, for your pleasure, uh, for your entertainment... Just kidding. I've got three. Three reasons why the word is necessary. Number one, the word has the power to cleanse. And only the word has the power to cleanse. Look what Ephesians 5.25 through 27 say. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How does Christ present the church, preserve the church, cleanse the church? By the washing of the water with the word. Listen, this book right here, the word of God, it has the power to cleanse us, brothers and sisters. You're going to find when you find yourself in a mess, like Peter was. Peter needed cleansed. You know what he needed? The Word of God. And in Peter's case, the Word in flesh actually showed up and gave him instructions on what to do. And you're going to find you really want to be cleansed. You want to be holy. You want to be without spot. You want to be without blemish. It's not that hard. You need to know what God has said and you need to do it. This book has the power to cleanse. There is nothing else that has the power to do that. Lights can't do that. Great, powerful, you know, uh, uh, preaching with powerful words and emotion and everything, that doesn't cleanse people. Might motivate people, might make a little tear come down the eye, but it doesn't cleanse the heart. Only the Word of God can do that. And to those of us who are called to this ministry of teaching the Word of God, if we're really trying to lead people into freedom, if we're really trying to see people transformed, if we're really trying to see sinners cleansed, if we're really trying to see darkness dispelled, there's only one way. It's through the washing of the water with the Word. We've got to be teaching the Word. So the Word has power to cleanse. Number two, it has power to break down walls. Look at Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I want to read that again, and as I read it, I want you to ask yourself this question. Here's the question. Is there anything in the world that can do this? but the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now look at this statement, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And look at this final statement, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we're somehow trying to reach a lost and dying world by being entertaining. I want to be loud and clear. I'm not against lights and I'm not against stuff that's entertaining. And and I'm not against anything for that matter. But the point is, is those things do not have the ability to pierce between soul and spirit. They are not a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the hearts of men. But this is. The amazing thing is we take it all. We take all these things that they use as metrics and you put them all in a little box and say these are the things that make a church powerful and this thing by itself is on a scale 100,000 million times infinitely more power than all of that stuff put together. 
So I'm not necessarily taking all that stuff and just throw it in the trash. All I'm saying is recognize what it is. Powerless. This has got to become forefront. This must be what we are feeding the sheep. There is power to break down walls in this. And that's what's so awesome about the word of God. You know, I see people at times that feel compelled to teach the word. The Holy Spirit's dealing with them to teach the word. And if you're not careful, you know what you'll do? You'll start comparing yourself to the great Billy Grahams. Like, well, I could never fill a stadium like that guy. So, God didn't call you to be Billy Graham. And it ain't about filling stadiums. And when you realize, you know, you, you don't have to... The point I'm trying to make is quit comparing yourself to people and quit getting it in your mind that in order for this to work, like in order for this to work, it has to be in the hands of somebody with much influence. What a slam to the Word of God. This thing doesn't need to be in anybody's hands of influence. It just needs to be preached and taught and trust that the Word of God's going to do the work. You will find... I've had uh, people before that have asked me in ministry how I consistently teach with the degree of confidence that I do, the boldness, the authority, as if it's some gift. Here's the honest answer. I really, 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 really believe this book. Like I don't, it's, it's the book itself that actually provides the confidence. And I study my heart out to make sure that what I'm saying is correct. But once I've got it fully convinced in my mind and my heart that what I'm saying is correct, it, like, I'll die over it. That's where the confidence comes from. It's what God's Word says. All I, and so that's where the confidence comes from. It has nothing to do with delivery or anything of that nature. It's like, this is true. You need to know what this says. You need to know this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. And here's where it's at. And here's what it says. And you need to live by it. That's where the confidence comes from, brothers and sisters. It's in the word of God. And every single one of you under the sound of my voice should have that same confidence in the word of God. It has the power to work all by itself. Regardless of who it is that's teaching it. And finally... It has the power to produce life. This is an important principle because in the end, right, this is about rescuing the perishing. Jesus said you must be born again. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Um, we see that his goal is to save and rescue the perishing and even pastoring, right, where we pastor the church. The goal is to make healthy disciples who make other disciples. That's the goal. In the end, the big picture is expanding the kingdom of God and winning the lost. That's ultimately what it's about, bringing people to Jesus, producing new life. Look what Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11 tell us. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Man, when God's shepherds get a hold of this, we'll quit doing anything but simply trying to lead people to the word of God. 
man, this thing's powerful. It'll do the work, brothers and sisters. We need to be teaching it. We need to be studying it. We need to be preaching it. Everything else is powerless. That doesn't mean everything else is bad. It means it's powerless. And when we understand the task at hand, we need power. We need the power that only the word of God possesses to accomplish that thing. I'm going to ask our worship team, if you guys would get it in place, I want to conclude with one thought. God knows what his sheep need. Right? Jesus, <laughs> he says to Peter three times, feed my sheep. Not feed your sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times he says, mine, mine, mine. They're not ours. They're not yours. The church is not mine. Your Sunday school class is not yours. Your small group is not yours. Your men's ministry is not yours. Your women's ministry is not yours. Your youth group is not yours. They're not ours. Jesus said they're mine. Now I want you to imagine a scenario where you have a flock of animals. And for keeping with the story, let's say sheep. And you entrust somebody with the care of your sheep and you give them some very specific instructions. These are my sheep. Here's what they eat, when they eat, and how I want you to feed them. And then you go your way and come back to find that who you put in charge decided you don't know anything about how to feed your sheep. That old meal was boring. You've decided to spice things up. You've got a whole diet of your own you think that's better for the sheep. What would you do with that person? And yet that is how so many handle the sheep of God. He knows what's best for his sheep. He's the one that gets to say what they're fed. He's the one that gets to say what our responsibility is as spiritual leaders is to feed them. And in case you didn't get it the first time, listen secondly, it's to feed them. And just in case you missed those first two points, refer to point number three, feed the, feed the flock, feed the sheep. So I want to challenge you this morning, if you're a spiritual leader in this place, I want to challenge you to rethink, remind yourself, recommit to feeding the flock. Understand the Word of God is what they need to be feasting on. And if you're here this morning, just visiting us for church, maybe you're a member of this church, I want to challenge you to be in the Word of God. Like, what does your, your spiritual life look like? Are you one of those people that I referenced that you're only eating, you know, once or twice a week and really you need to, to recommit and, and, and allow your, your mind and your heart to accept this truth that your sustenance and your strength spiritually in large part is absolutely connected to your commitment to the Word of God in your life. You're going to find that people, the devil, time, life, the pace of society, all of it is fighting for our time. All of it. All of it is demanding our attention. 
But we must make the Word of God a priority in our life if we are going to stand spiritually. In Ephesians 5.16, it speaks about redeeming the time. Man, if people back then, 2,000 years ago, had to be intentional about redeeming, rescuing, taking back what is theirs, the time, man, how much more do we? How much time do you wish you could redeem last week? What's your schedule look like this week and how much of it do you need to redeem and make sure that you get things corrected so that you're able to give proper time to your spiritual nourishment in the Word of God? 